Well, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes this summer, and it's been a huge reality check on what life is really all about and what really matters most. And today, Solomon's going to stick the landing on the whole thing by answering two final questions. Number one, how can we live for what matters most? And keep from getting sucked into the noisy, confusing, finite value system of this world that screams at us day and night through billboards, blogs, best-selling songs. And number two, why should I even try? Because it feels like swimming upstream, doesn't it? And sometimes you think, am I the only one trying to do this? And so that's what he's going to do today. How? Give me a strategy. Why? Why should I even try? He's going to give us the how and the why. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 8. Ecclesiastes 12, 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Look at me for just a moment. Right there is the final of 67 times that he's used this word now. And if he was a cynic, he could have ended his book right there. Vanity of vanities. Boom, 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 boom. That's what I want to leave you thinking about. I want you to wallow in the hopelessness of this world. But he's not a cynic. Oh, he started with vanity in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, and he comes back to it now at the conclusion. But vanity does not get the last word. There's something else far greater that he wants to leave us thinking about, wrestling with, and responding to. Look at it beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. What's he doing? He's actually defending himself a little bit here because so many of you probably thought this was one of the most random thrown together books I've ever tried to read. He's saying, no, it wasn't. Careful. I put this together carefully. I arranged it. I gave thought to this. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Same thing going on here. It's not all vanity. Oh yeah, he said that a lot, but he wants to remind you 16 times he talked about joy and enjoy. There's so much God has given us even in a fallen, broken world and he wants you to enjoy it. Often those are things we're just overlooking while we chase after the wrong things. He's like, I brought you words of delight, hope you didn't miss it, and words of truth. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. He's not talking about himself, he's talking about God. God's word through him. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh, the end of the matter. All has been said. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So if vanity is not the last thing he wants us to remember, what does he want us to get here today? Well, here's the first thing, number one. Number one, he says, the wisdom of man is confusing and exhausting. That's what he's talking about in verse 12. When he talks about endless books being written. Because the wisdom of man is changing. Always changing. Locked into a search mode. Bouncing from one thing to another. Regardless of how contradictory they are. Oh I know we just said that. But now not that. This. Oh I know we were saying this. But not this. That. 
bouncing from one thing to another because our world has decided there is no absolute truth. And so all they can do is search and write and rewrite and publish and podcast and repodcast over and over and over. And have you ever noticed that they don't come back and even say sorry and apologize? Oh, that was totally wrong. They just move on like it didn't happen. Oh, never mind. Like you were pounding this drum pretty hard. They never come back. Bouncing all around. Look at verse 12, what he says. My son, beware of anything beyond these, beyond the words of God, God's word. Beware of making many books. There is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. In other words, Solomon warns us not to believe everything you read if it doesn't come from the one true Shepherd. Oh, do we need to be reminded of that today? Oh, just because you read it, anybody with a keyboard and a Wi-Fi connection can put something out there. Can't tell you how many times someone said, well, I read. Whatever. It was a video. Big whatever. Like, for crying out loud, just because you read it and someone said it doesn't mean it's true. Yikes. And oh, this was Solomon so long ago when books were rare. You realize books were expensive. Not many people could get them. And he's saying there was a danger then. Dear me, the danger we face has only escalated, you guys, with the unlimited access we have to social media and the internet. Oh, yes, I love to read. And so I am oh so grateful Oh, so grateful for the invention of Gutenberg's printing press in 1440 that changed the world forever. And some of you might have known that date, 1440, Gutenberg, printing press, books, the Bible could be printed. But did you realize something happened in 2007? You're like, I was alive then, I don't remember it. Something happened in 2007 that has made a much, much, much greater impact on how every human being searches for truth. In 2007, Steve Jobs released into our world the first iPhone. That same year, Facebook was available to anybody with an email address. The iCloud was formed, the Twitter app arrived, and the digital information age was launched and has done nothing but explode exponentially with new platforms and apps that all jostle for your attention as a source of so-called truth, truth, truth. Since the iPhone first rocked our world in 2007, it's just mind-boggling to think how fast this happened. Since 2007, there are now 2.2 million apps that you can download onto your phone with more than 75 ways to stay connected with the latest news, mindless gossip, enraged activists, self-made celebrities, stupid videos, and of course, your own particular tribe or group of friends. On top of that, oh, get this. And I see this so often with you younger people. Sorry, I'm gonna pick on you. You don't even ask your mother about babies. My wife had five babies. Ask her how to do some of this. Oh, I Googled. I Googled. Please stop. Ask your mother. Ask your grandmother. We've lived through this. There's wisdom in people that went ahead of you. Here's what's going on now. Oh, man. Half of the world. You ready? Half of the world. 3.5 billion people now do a Google search on something Every day. Don't hear me saying it's a sin. I use it. I'm grateful. I used to go. I'm old enough. I used to have to drive to the library, park my car, go in, and oh, God, help me try to figure out how to use the card catalog. I never understood it. (laughs) To find something or a quote and make sure it, whew, I'm grateful. Don't hear me saying it's all bad. I'm trying to point out the day. Every good thing usually has an Achilles heel and a dark side. 
But I see the dark side doing big damage today, you guys. 3.5 billion people do a Google search on something every day. But here's what's really sad. None of it's making us any wiser or helping us live any better. Have you noticed that? Do you see people living wiser and living better? More joy, more peace, more contentment, more more of the stuff that the human heart wants because there's epidemic numbers of people now, anxious, addicted, angry, fearful, hopeless, and even suicidal while they have unlimited amounts of information at their fingertips for free. It hasn't fixed our biggest problems. It hasn't caused human beings to thrive and flourish. And here's part of it. If you're thinking about Brad, isn't information good? You know, we tend to think people like information is education. And when you're informed, you can live right. You can live better. You can, if just half of what was on the internet was true, it might lead to that, you guys. Because here's what I wish every single person, but especially Christians knew. Google does not exist to lead you to wisdom. They exist to make money. Did you know that? So when they see that you stay on this site and on this article long, guess what they do? They have written algorithms that give you more of what they see you've already decided must be right. So that then all you're getting are articles like that. And you think, this is, this is true. Everything I get is, yeah. And someone over here is getting the opposite because they saw where they linger. It's all about how long do you stay on a page because advertisers will not pay Millions of dollars if you don't stay on the page. It's how do I get you to stay and then I'll give you more of that. More of. Doesn't mean it's true. Just means they saw that's what you actually prefer and like. So here you go. More of it. More of it. So much of what's on the internet, you guys. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't say, oh, he's old. I am so grateful. I use it all the time for all kinds of things. I've got access to 430 million songs now on iTunes. That's a good thing. I can have whatever I want. I love music and now it's mine. I used to go to the record store and thumb through albums. And then you put it on. It's so funny now how I guess skinny ties are coming back too. Now young people are buying record players. It's terrible. It's like we we move past that. You got to lift the needle and skip the song you don't like. How convenient is that? I don't download the song I don't like. I only get the songs I like from the album. I'm not going back. I'm not buying a record player. Are you crazy? And then guess what? Your friend comes into the room dancing and the needle bounces. Now there's a scratch on that song forevermore. I can dance with all my friends and shake the house and iTunes doesn't scratch anything. Still good. But I, 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 I diverge. So much of what's on the internet is just information misinformation, speculation, and even conspiracy when what we desperately need is wisdom and wisdom comes from, say it, say it louder, God. Even information, do you realize, and teachers are gonna love me for saying this, I hope, as we've launched school again, You can have tons of information and you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to connect it. That's the other problem. People think, because I have information, I have wisdom. Teachers are paid to help you know what to do with it. When you don't know what to do with it and how to connect it, you're still stupid. Surrounded by information. We need teachers. You need someone to tell you what to do with it. Information alone. It's just information. It's misinformation, it's speculation, it's conspiracy. We need wisdom. In his forthcoming book, Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age, Samuel James defines the essence of wisdom this way. He says, wisdom is living in light of reality. Doesn't that sound like what Solomon's been driving home to us all summer? Wisdom is living in light in light of reality. The book of Ecclesiastes is one ginormous reality check. It's just a reality check. You are frail. You are finite. You will die. You need God. You are frail. 
You are finite. You will die. You need God. Wisdom is living in light of reality. And so Solomon has not wanted to depress you. You know what he's, you know what he's been trying to do? He knows you can't grow up until he first blows up what you've been clinging to. These notions that the world give us, that you can script your life, you can be whatever you want, you can, you can, you can, you You can't grow up and really live and thrive and flourish until first we blow up all these lies and fantasies and misnomers that the world, that the world brings to us relentlessly. Living in the light of the reality that we're frail. We're finite. Here's a big one. And we cannot fix this mess on our own. We desperately need God to rescue us and redeem this fallen, broken world. We need to be rescued and we need him to redeem this fallen, broken world. Samuel James goes on to say, quote, because wisdom is a submission to God's good and given reality. Ecclesiastes is God's good and given reality. Wisdom is a submission to God's good and given reality. Our immersion in computer and internet existence is a crisis of spiritual formation. Our digital environments dislocate us, training us to believe and feel and communicate in certain ways that our given embodied physical environments do not. Again, don't hear me saying, let's be, let's get rid of the internet But what he's saying is be careful. If you live on the net, it actually dislocates you from reality. Right? We're in a day now. You know, I wanted to drive. As soon as I turned 16, I wanted to drive. One of the number one reasons is I want to see my friends. And now I'm running into people left and right. Their kid's 18 years old. He still doesn't drive. She doesn't drive. Why? And I'm reading articles. You know why? They think they're connected to their friends while they lay on their bed. This pseudo-superficial internet connection is not the same as real friendship face-to-face. And so there's epidemic numbers of loneliness and anxiety while they think they have a relationship. This is not a real relationship. This is not what you actually need. You will be dislocated from real life and you will struggle in ways that people didn't used to struggle with. Uh, Who... Did we ever used to hear of gamers? Oh, he's a gamer. What does that usually mean? He doesn't come out of the basement. We take food and we leave it down there. He never, he's online. He has a different name. He's somebody else. He's got this totally different world. Problem, he isn't connected to the real world, doesn't get a job, doesn't move forward. It just, now don't hear me saying, I know you're not all gamers. You're here. Thank you. You came up out of the dark. You dressed, you came. You shut down your game for a memento. What I am saying is we're all on there to some degree. Just remember, if you're not careful, it doesn't inform you and help you engage in the real world. If you're not careful, it will dislocate you more and more. Even here, I'll I'll give a real example. If you were taking your cues from online, you would think people of different race all still just hate each other. And it would make you afraid to speak to someone of a different race. I, I choose, I speak to everybody. I like to be friendly. But I'm not afraid to speak to people of a different race. And when I engage them, with few exceptions, I've just had a few exceptions, I've been warmly received by a stranger. Hey, how's it going today? Oh, good, how are you? I'm not going to believe what's happening. Online gives you a very different, skewed world. Go out to coffee with a real person, talk to a real neighbor, engage real people, and don't take your cues from the internet. Find out what's really going in the real world by talking to real people that are around you. It will dislocate you. Training us to believe and feel and communicate in certain ways that our given embodied physical environments do not. The more immersive the technology, the more extreme the effect. Well, let me give you some good news. Number two, in contrast to man's wisdom, oh, thank you, Lord, for number two, the word of God. So far, so good, but you might not like the next word. 
will sting you and stabilize you. The word of God will sting you and stabilize you. Look at what he's talking about in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. That one verse gives us three incredible things about God's word. Here's the first. The word goad was simply a sharp stick that a herdsman used to prod an animal, an ox or a sheep, to get it going in the right direction. Not that way, this way. To protect it often from itself. Keep it from stopping. A goad pricks. It's not fun. It's sharp. It stings. When you read God's word, you don't find this reading like your best life now. I love all this. Each morning I don't read it and say that's exactly what I would have thought. No, it stings me. It's like, ah, it hits me between the eyes some mornings. It's like, ah, 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 but it's helpful. It's necessary. I don't know this whole notion. All the truth that you need is already inside of you, resonating in you. Just look inside. No, I need truth from outside, from my creator God. And it often is very different than what I would have thought. Sting, sting. But he loves us enough to move us in the right direction. To stop us, to poke us, to pro- God's word pokes, it prods, it stings. And then, oh, I love this next word picture. Like nails that are fixed. You want something that's nailed down in a world where it seems like everything's unhinged. Everything's flapping in the wind. Everything's, I don't know if that's true anymore. Here you go. Like nails that are fixed. Here's where you go for something you can count on. It doesn't change. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Bonus, might want to jot that down. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands. Do you know the next word? Forever. Go here, people. Go here. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. Now, more and more as you go here, you think, ooh, that is not what the world is saying. Mm Mm-hmm. That's not even what some of the Christian camp is saying. I know. Because Christians, sadly, love to hitch their wagon to what the world is saying and just put a few verses jerked out of context around it. Go with God's word. God's word. What it says, what it always said, don't try to change it. Don't try to reinterpret it. Don't cut parts out. Stands forever. And then number three, that comes to us from one shepherd. Notice he doesn't say from a philosopher, from a teacher, from a financial guru. He knows we need a shepherd. This shepherd's our good. Oh, and this, he's talking about God. God is called a shepherd in Isaiah 40. And oh, praise God, there is a shepherd. And guess what? He's not silent. What if God had never spoken? What if all we had was creation and we had this sense there must be more I was designed to live for more, but I don't know what. I don't know what. This good shepherd has spoken. God wants you to know he's not silent. He wants you to know he gave us his word. Question, do you read it? Do you know what it says? Or are you so immersed online with this, that, and the other that you hardly have time for this? You hardly make time for this. Here's where you'll hear from your shepherd and it'll poke you sometimes and it'll settle you and stabilize you and say, oh, one of my favorite things about reading my Bible each each morning now is I just feel like it reorients me and settles me. It only takes 24 hours that I feel unsettled, undone by all that's going on in the world and I come back, oh, oh, there is a God. He's spoken. He's with me in it. Here's a point that's convicted me. I was like, oh, God, please help me. I need to work on that. But, oh, poke, settle, shepherd, shepherd, shepherd. I'm not orphaned. I've not been thrown into this vanity of vanities world on my own with no help. I have a shepherd who's with me in it, and he has spoken. He's spoken. Oh, that's good. So what's the answer? And what's the strategy for swimming upstream in a world like this? Well, number three, the fear of God will free you to obey him. 
And verse 13 sets it up in a big, big way. When he says the end of the matter, all has been heard. In other words, he's, he's drawing us back in case you, he'd lost your attention. He's bringing it in like a teacher would say. I had a favorite teacher, Buck Hatch, that would thump the, the dry board with his, no, it was a chalkboard back then. That's how old it was. He'd thump the chalkboard with his knuckle and say, look up here, look up here. He was old, look up here. He would bring it in and then he would say something amazing. He was a phenomenal teacher. This is what Solomon's doing. The end of the matter All has been heard. He's setting it up. Okay, what? What? Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. In other words, fearing God and keeping his commands are the answer to the emptiness, emptiness and futility that we've been slogging through for 12 chapters now. But I know the human heart, human nature, by nature, neither one of those things sound fun. Fear God. I don't think so. Keep his commandments. I really don't think so. Then I'd have to do some things I don't want to do. What if he says what I don't want to do? Yeah, I know. Fear God. Keep his commandments. If you got lost, if you thought, woo, pretty simple. Pretty simple. This is back to the basics of how to flourish and thrive. There is a God. You want to fear him? He has spoken. You want to find out what he says and do it. Fear God and keep his commandments. And if you're saying, what? Let me help you understand what fearing God is about. Letter A, when you fear God, you experience peace and rest and real Wisdom. It's only when you begin to fear God, fear God that you experience peace and rest and get wisdom. Fear of God is not just the beginning of wisdom. I know Proverbs 1, 7 says that. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's also the beginning of joy, contentment, and a sense of real purpose for your life. Because until you stop trying, he knows what our tendency is as, as a sinner. Until you stop trying to be God, you can't submit to God and delight in God and begin to live for what you were created to do. You were actually made to make much of him, to make much of him, not you. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but you were created in his image for his glory, which means you were made to make much of him and not you. I feel like I might be the last man standing saying this. You were made to make much of him and not you. Yikes. I mean, we've got a culture now that's just on steroids. It's all about you. It's all about you. And then sadly, we've got Christians writing books that say the same sort of kind of thing in a Christian kind of way, grabbing some verses. You were made to make much of him. Him, not you. And you say, well, Brad, what does it matter what I make much of? How, How does that have anything to do with anything? Oh, let me help you. The Jewish philosophy professor, Abraham Heschel, got it right. I've got a picture of this dead man in my office. Curly hair, big beard. He looks really, really, really scholastic. But I love this quote because he gets it right. He says, oh, here's what's going on. There is thus only one way to wisdom. Awe. Awe. Forget your sense of awe. Let your conceit diminish your ability to revere and the universe becomes a marketplace for you. Oh, do we have a world right now where everyone's tried to turn this into a marketplace for them? It's all about me. It's about me, not you, me. But then they're living saying, no, it's all about me, not you. And then we wonder why there's a war going on. There is a cultural war, as everyone has been told. No, make it about you. Disastrous, disastrous. Let your conceit diminish your ability to revere and the universe becomes a marketplace for you. The loss of awe is the great block to insight. You want more insights about what life really is about and what you, 
who you really are and how to really live, you don't even get them. You don't even get some of the insights you need the most until you are in awe of God. Yeah, there is a God and he's worthy of my praise. He's sovereign. He's in control. And I want to know him, follow him, listen to him. You don't get that unless you live with awe. And it's not just about God getting the glory he deserves. It's about what's good for us. It's good for us. It's good for us. Because then you begin to live in the way that you were designed to live. It's actually our day, you guys, that's beating the drum of make much of self that has so many people on a path of destruction Destruction, defining self, defending self, promoting self, proclaiming self, and demanding that you affirm and agree with me, whatever I say. How's that working out? What do you see going on? Do you see human beings flourishing and thriving? Failure to thrive is on the rise, you guys. While we have medical advancements, technology, Education, way beyond income and stuff, way beyond they had hundreds of years ago. But failure to thrive and flourish as human beings is on the rise. The rise. Why? Because you were never designed to live for you and make much of you. Because people are trying to do what they were never designed to do, live for self, make much of self... This might shock some of you. Living for you puts you in a very small world focused on a very small subject, you. And you will feel like you are suffocating, suffocating. And then you'll just believe the lie, but there's not enough people affirming me, agreeing with me, promoting me, encouraging me. No, 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 that's not the problem. You are suffocating because you have shrunk your world down so small. You were never designed to live for you. That's what's making you so miserable. You were created to live for so much more. That's when it's like the lid on that Tupperware with that little rotting broccoli inside there gets pulled off and the stink is released. And you're like, oh, I can breathe again. I can breathe again. That lid doesn't get pulled off until you look up and begin to live with awe and begin to say, oh, what was I designed to live for? How was I created to be in relationship with the creator God? And he's so glorious and I live for him. I do what I do for him. I'm in a relationship with him. And you start to breathe and you start to thrive and you start to flourish and you start to experience joy like you'd never had peace like you'd never had, a sense of purpose like you'd never had. It's all on the other side of living for him, not you. See, when the Bible talks about fear of God, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm just terrified. I don't even want to approach him. I can't be around him. That's not what the biblical fear of God is about. When the Bible talks about the fear of God, it's talking about a man or woman whose world has opened up exponentially because they live now with awe and amazement and gratitude for the magnitude of God's love and power and greatness. And then you wake up, there's, there's regular days that I think, and he knows me and calls me by name and has rescued me and cares about me and thinks about me. Wow, you want a sense of worth? You want a sense of purpose? You want something that would boost your I'm kind of wallowing feeling down today? Far better than a text from a friend. God knows me by name. Wow. In other words, the fear of God is what helps you forget about self. And that's when you start to have real joy. When you think and talk and live and make much of something else. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15. He's writing to believers because can we still, look at me for just a minute, can we still try to live the wrong way even after he saves us? I wish it wasn't true, but you've got this flesh and the flesh wants to make it about you and the world only affirms that. 
So Paul, writing believers, says this. Note what he says. For the love of Christ controls us. I'm not supposed to be controlled about promoting me. Love of me. Oh, you can't even love anybody till you love yourself. Please stop. You love yourself a lot. Nowhere in the Bible does it say work on that. Work on that. No, no, no. When the love of Christ controls you, watch what happens. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live. He means you're alive spiritually now. That those who live should no longer live for them. Notice how it's worded. It means this is what you were doing. When you're born as a sinner, you automatically are wired to live for you. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. Three life-changing words, but for him. But for him, but for him, but for him. And it doesn't mean you all quit your jobs and try to work at the church and become a missionary. Keep doing what you're doing home manager. Keep doing what you're doing, pharmaceutical sales rep. Keep doing what you're doing, graphic designer. Keep doing what you're doing, Kroger representative. Keep doing what you're doing, but do it waking up every day knowing, I know God. I live for God. And I'm going to be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in this place. I'm going to be the best at what I do for the glory of God, for the glory of God, for the glory of God, for the glory of God. That would change our world. That would change our world. And that's what he wants to see happen through us. But it will not happen until we stop living for us. But now what about keeping God's commands? Let it be. When you obey God, oh, I know it's counterintuitive. You think, oh, obey. Now I'll never be happy. You know what's killing you? Doing what you want. That's what's killing you, doing what you want. Oh, when you begin to obey God, he's good. He knows how he created. It puts you on the rails and you begin to experience joy and freedom like never before. It's not saying, oh, but I'm gonna do this and then tragedy. Ah, I just didn't do it right. I didn't get enough of it. No, it's because when you do what God says, you experience freedom and you flourish We think if we could just live with no restrictions, no limitations, we would thrive. I actually saw an advertisement. I had to laugh. I saw an advertisement, and its slogan was, live on your own terms. And it was a slogan for a retirement community home. Now, you think about that for a minute. Live on your own terms. By the time you need a retirement home, you should have figured out how much of life is not lived on your own terms. It's just not. We're moving in here now because we can't get up and downstairs. Vicky and I, on our own terms, we're gonna stay in the house on Mount Vernon Drive till we died. We, we redid the kitchen. We are moving now because Vicky cannot navigate the stairs. We're not living life on our own terms, but we are living life with God, Amen. with God. So much of my life as I look back, it wasn't, that's exactly what I planned. That, those were my terms. Those were my terms. Those were, get a grip. You don't, but the human heart wants it so badly, it just keeps, no matter how many times the sl- slogan crashes to the floor in pieces, we put it back together and pretend it didn't happen. They're like, live on your own terms. Mm. And this idea of calling your own shots now, It's on steroids in our culture today as we're surrounded by slogans like follow your heart. You do you. Speak your truth. And of course, be true to yourself. Here's what I think is interesting. I don't know whether you know that this kind of thinking has been around for a long time. Guess what? It just wasn't always considered wise. Did you know that? It really wasn't. It wasn't always considered wise. In 1599, Shakespeare's Hamlet included this memorable line that people know and gets quoted all the time. This above all to thine 
own self be true. But does anybody remember who said it? Polonius, the fool. In Hamlet, there's a bumbling, stumbling fool. And that's who Shakespeare had say it because that's what they thought of it in that day. You realize without the internet, without all the advances, quote, we have, there was a day that people had more of an awareness. There is a God and you don't just do whatever you want. They saw it as foolish, this above all. Doesn't it sound similar to the way Solomon ended his book? The end of the matter, all has been heard. This above all, to thine own self be true. And we've got people today going around quoting it like it's an amazing life-changing truth. So when did human beings begin to justify this kind of living and even promote it? Justify it and promote it. That whatever you feel, whatever you want, whatever you desire, get your hands around it and do it. Don't let anybody get in your way. Well, you can thank Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, for kicking it off in a huge way in the 1800s. Because he pioneered the concept that repression of desire is the basis for all of our problems. It's why you're not happy. It's why you do weird things. It's the basis of all our problems, repression of desire. And so the answer is look inside and figure out what you want and then don't let any, and then he was the king of blame. Who, who socialized you? Is it the church? Was it a teacher? Was it your parents that laid on you these shoulds and these oughts and these nots? Who's to blame for why you are so repressed now? Shake it off. Even he went so far to say, you guys, you're committing adultery. You feel bad about it. You know why you feel bad about it? Because God gave you a conscience. And Romans 2 says his law is written on your heart. You're supposed to feel bad about it. What did Freud say? What's the answer? Just keep doing it until you don't feel bad anymore. Well, thank you very much. Freud, you guys, Freud, Freud, do what you want. Oh, it's not the answer at all. Listen, you can pretend there is no God. You can try to ignore his word, but it doesn't change what's coming. Number four, the judgment of God will force you to face him. Judgment of God will force you to face him. You can spend your life avoiding God, ignoring God, even denying God. But you will face God on that final day. Look at what he brings us to in the final verse. The final verse, it's worth noting. How would he begin? How would he end? He began with vanity of vanities. He doesn't end with vanity of vanities. He ends. He ends. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You say, Brad, when's that gonna happen? Well, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 in the New Testament assures us it happens immediately after you die. That's why Hebrews 9, 27 says, every man is destined to die. And after this, the judgment the judgment. There is no karma. There is no reincarnation. There is no second or third chances. There is no purgatory. There is no limbo. There is no middle earth. You will stand before your creator, God. And you will either stand, only two options, you will either stand alone with nothing but your sin, or you will stand with your savior who says, she's mine, he's mine. Look at that robe of righteousness, father. I bought it, I paid for it. When I died on the cross, my perfect life I lived and my death on the cross paid all the sins. Father, that's why you can't find any record of her sin. Search and search and search and you can't find it because Colossians tells us at the cross, the handwriting that was against us was wiped 
out. When she put her trust in me, when he put his trust in me, you won't find a record of their sin. Enter into your eternal rest. And in case you're confused, heaven is not smoky, mystical, and we're all chubby with harps. I wouldn't want to go either. You will be in the presence of the most wonderful, beautiful, mind-blowing, satisfying person in the world, your Savior. And he is going to bring us into a new heaven and new earth. We're going to be here. Do you like mountains? I do. Do you like streams? Do you like ocean? Do you like porpoises? We're going to have it. I might ride a porpoise. I don't know. But oh my goodness, the best of the best of the best of the best will be here, but no sin, no sickness, no death, and no boredom. Every day, better than the one before, better than the one before. Wow. Oh my goodness. The final message of Ecclesiastes is not nothing matters. It's actually right now. What you do with Jesus matters eternally because it will decide and determine what God does with you on that final day. Heaven or hell. And today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear my voice. Today, today. There is no second chance. There is no later. Today, today. Recently on a plane, I was seated next to a guy, and I, you know, you're this close, can't help but overhear his phone conversation. And I can tell he's a man of means. He's done what the world says do. He has what the world says you should have. So when he hung up, I started a conversation, just began to ask questions, and I learned he's turning 50. He has two huge homes in Michigan. These are his words. Millions in the bank. And then he said, but I'm fairly miserable since I retired early in my 40s. Now put that in your pipe and smoke it. All all you, I'm turning properties so I can retire when I'm 40. Everyone I know that retires early is miserable. And they begin to be a greeter at Walmart and put stickers on people because I need to do something. I'm gonna lose my mind sitting around in my pile of money. You were made to work. But that's an aside. I'm fairly miserable. Wow. He's got what the world says you should have. And so I turned it in a spiritual direction and I said, you seem successful and you seem to be at an important point in your life. Now here's a question I like to use. So do you have any thoughts about the afterlife? I can't tell you how many times this happens, you guys. God has divine appointments. He looks at me and says, funny that you should ask, I've just started thinking about it. Because my brother moved into our area to help me care for our father whose health is failing now. I've just started thinking about it. But no, no. You just die. When you die, you die and that's it. And he went on pushing this view for a while and I let him go. And when he took a breath, I simply said, but what if you're wrong? This is really serious. You know what? He didn't get mad. Instead, he lowered his voice with feeling and he said, I know, I know. And so I began to talk to him about, here's why we have Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who 2,000 years ago already discovered that nothing, no amount of anything in this world will satisfy because he's put eternity in our hearts. You need a relationship with God and you were made for eternity. Of course, when I went more God, he began to give me all his concerns about the church and Christians he'd run into. It didn't. It didn't run, it didn't throw me off. I did what I hope you'll do. I just kept bringing it back to Jesus. And I said, oh, please don't let a church or any particular Christian keep you from missing out on what Jesus offers. You need to decide, is Jesus who he says he was? And did he do what the scriptures testify? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look to Jesus and decide, is he who he says he is? I brought it back to Jesus. Listen to me. The son of God took on flesh and stepped into our Ecclesiastes, dark, broken, futile world to do for us what we could never do, to forgive our sins and give us the ability to live for what matters most. 
And that's why Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. But oh, listen to this next phrase. He does not come into judgment. That day, that day that's coming for every single one of us, for you it'll be very different if you know Jesus. Oh, if you have Jesus standing there with you. Oh, if you're covered in a robe. It's not, have I done enough of the right things? Have I kept the Ten Commandments well enough? Did I treat other people the way I want to be treated? That's what I hear when I ask people, do you think you're going to heaven? That doesn't get you into heaven. It's do you have Jesus standing in your presence saying, she's mine, he's mine, I did it for them. They put their trust in me. Forgiven forgiven. That's why we actually call this good news. That's really good news. And it's a free offer today. It's a free offer today. Oh, Solomon would be thrilled, you guys, if at the conclusion of his book, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and prepared yourself for that day. But guess what? It'll change the way you live this day. It'll change the way you live the rest of your days here in this broken world. It'll certainly change that day and it'll change this day. Come to Christ. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Say, I need a savior. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in giving us your son and in giving us your word, in being a good shepherd who has spoken. You're not a silent God. You're not a hiding God. You don't run from us. You move to us and you want us to know. You want us to know. You want us to know. And your word even tells us it's not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.